Well, good morning again. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. We are continuing in our series verse by verse through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16. And we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last week and who missed that interview with Brian Olson before he headed off to Nepal, uh, I would highly suggest going back and listening to the podcast. Uh, I'm, my family was in quarantine, and I was so sad to not be here in person, but it was, I think, one of the best teachings that we've had at River's Edge. I was so filled with faith just listening to Bo and his story and the way God was calling him to Nepal. Uh, so we're going to continue to support him and pray for him, and eventually some of us will go uh, and be with him and visit him and encourage him in that place. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we are continuing in our series. And if you remember back, uh, not last Sunday when we interviewed Bo, but the Sunday before, we unpacked the verses in chapter 3 in which Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus at night. And if you were to go back and reread that narrative, it's been two weeks now, but Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and there's a conversation going back and forth. And then if you're reading through, it sort of seamlessly transitions into the verses that we'll read this morning. And in fact, it isn't immediately obvious where Jesus stops talking and where John starts within the text, but it's actually right here in John 3.16, where John writes this. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we'll actually stop there for now before we read the rest of the verses, uh, and I'll pray. Jesus, we uh, come consciously into your presence collectively, uh, recognizing that as we gather, there is something unique. Lord, there is no place that you are not, but there are places where you are in a unique way, where you, where you dwell, where you manifest yourself uni uniquely, and you say where two or three or four are gathered in your name in some remote mountain village in Nepal or right here in Spokane, Washington. God, there you are in a unique way among us. And so we actually uh, yield to you uh, who you are right now, what you're already doing, what you're already up to, what you desire for our lives, what you desire to do through us. Lord, there's more there than we can even properly receive or, or bear or understand. You have so much that you desire to give us uh, and that you desire to do with us through the life that we have. But I pray that you would just um, continue that process of opening us up, Lord, to understand uh, sort of how wide and deep and beautiful your love is for us and others. And when we see that and receive it and operate in it, wow, beautiful things start to happen in us and in the world around us. So open us up to this love that we're reading about, Lord. As we prayed earlier, do not let this be only knowledge, but may it be an experience that we're growing in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, Jesus explains to him that even though he is a teacher of the Bible, 
and a leader of the Jewish nation, he is actually in need of salvation. He is actually in need of spiritual rebirth uh, in the power of the Spirit. And that without this, Jesus says, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus finishes by saying that just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, which is a rather bizarre story in the Old Testament, but just as he lifts up the snake in the wilderness and all who came to it were healed, so too, Jesus says, I will be lifted up through the cross and ultimately the ascension, and all who come to me will have a similar experience. They will be healed, which is actually the same word for salvation. They will be healed, they will be saved by coming to me. And then in the very next verse, John the author sort of seamlessly steps out from behind the narrative and begins to explain or interpret what it is that we're reading about. It's as if he can't contain himself uh, anymore. He is eager to explain the full significance of what we've just read. What is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? I have to step in as the author and explain it with my own words, and this is how he explains it. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, in our context, as Gentiles following Jesus 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, this statement is not particularly shocking or provocative to us. In fact, today, this is one of the most well-known or famous verses in the entire Bible, and for the most part, we take it for granted. Uh, the real danger in reading this verse this morning is not that we will be offended or upset, but rather, the danger is that this verse has become so cliche that it means almost nothing to us anymore. But I want us to grasp the genius and the novelty that this concept would have had for its original audience. Uh, first, the genius. John, the author, is writing a masterpiece. And his masterpiece opens with a prologue a proclamation of who Jesus is, a stunning piece of writing, which proclaims, among other things, that Jesus is the Word, or Logos of God, uh, who was there in the beginning. He is the light of the world, uh, who is now stepping into the world to call people out of darkness. He is the one through whom the world was made, and he is now coming to it. And this proclamation... If you go back and look at chapter 1, is followed immediately by the witness of John the Baptist proclaiming to others, this is who this man is. This is who Jesus is. That's chapter 1. But what isn't immediately obvious is that the entire gospel of John is full of numbers and patterns. It is a highly intentional account. And by the time we get to chapter 3, we get another proclamation about who Jesus is and what God is doing through him, followed immediately by the witness of John the Baptist, once again proclaiming in his own words who Jesus is. John is making himself less so that Jesus can become more. It's chapter 1 
all over again, but with fresh language and direction. In chapter 1, we see that God created the world through Jesus, that he stepped into the world to rescue people out of darkness. In chapter 3, we see that the world that God created is also the world that he loves. And that just as everyone uh, finds their origin in Jesus, so too now everyone is being offered salvation through that same Jesus. Just as uh, creation itself originates with God, as we see in chapter 1, so too the salvation and redemption of humanity actually originates with Him. Uh, And we don't have time to fully unpack it, but if you want to, you can go back and you can compare those two proclamations side by side from chapter 1 and then here in chapter 3, which we're going to work our way through this morning, and you'll see that they actually beautifully mirror one another. Each one sort of plays off of similar and related themes, sort of playing off of and enhancing one another. Uh, Chapter 3 just gives fresh language and insight to John's prologue. So there's an absolute genius in the way that John has crafted uh, this account. This is not random. It is not uh, off the cuff. It is a highly structured, beautiful account of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's he's genius in the way that he crafts it. But there's also something highly provocative about what John has written. Starting in the very first words, For God so loved the world. And this is often lost on us. But you have to remember that Jesus came as an Israelite, as a Jew, and that almost all of the men and women who first encountered him and began to follow him and believe in him were Jewish. There were a few exceptions to the rule, which we'll see in the weeks ahead. But for the most part, he is a Jew uh, talking to Jews, calling Jewish disciples, and fulfilling the promises and prophecies of the Jewish Messiah. In fact, in the very next chapter, uh, as Jesus is talking to a non-Jewish Samaritan woman, he says clearly, quote, salvation is from the Jews. The problem was, that in first century Judaism, and in the centuries leading up to it, the general belief was that salvation was not just from the Jews, but that it was for the Jews. Remember that their world was sharply divided vertically, with the Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. And the Jews alone were chosen by God. The Jews alone, it was thought, were loved and cherished by God. In fact, in Paul's own words in the New Testament, he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God. So the thinking is, God speaks to us, God has rescued us out of pagan oppression in Egypt. 
And you remember what happened to those Egyptians, don't you? Dead and drowned. Those dirty pagans, right? Destroyed in the Red Sea. And now, centuries later, we find ourselves yet again laboring under the oppression of the pagans. The Romans have conquered our lands, and they are cruel masters. But the Messiah is coming, and it's going to be Exodus 2.0. The Romans will be drowned in the metaphorical sea. God's people will be liberated at last. He will save and rescue them, ushering in a a literal, physical, political kingdom of God on earth in Israel with the Messiah ruling on the throne of David in Jerusalem forever. The thinking at the time was that God does not love the world. He loves us. God has not chosen the world. He's chosen us. God does not speak to the world. He speaks to us. God is not in covenant relationship with the world. He's in covenant relationship with us. And when God returns, when the Messiah comes, it was thought to be uh, the end of the age. And in that moment, God is going to bring justice and judgment. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And guess what? It's really not going to be hard to separate them. Jews, step this way. Pagans, step to that side. Pretty simple. The Jews are the friends of God. Pagans are the enemies of God. By definition, they've chosen idolatry and paganism over God. And when God finally comes in power, he's going to judge and condemn the world, liberating the covenant people of God in the process. This is the cultural backdrop for understanding Scripture. The Old Testament and the New. If you catch this atmosphere the Bible from cover to cover actually starts to make more sense. You can think uh, as one example of the book of Jonah, where God says in a rare move in the Old Testament, hey, I have a prophet and I'm choosing you to go, Jonah. I want you to go to this great, big, horribly evil pagan city and, and call them back to me. Tell them about my grace and my love. And Jonah's response is, no, that doesn't make sense. I would rather die. And eventually God gets him to go anyways. And the city amazingly responds to God in repentance. And in the aftermath, Jonah curiously says, essentially, okay, now I really want to die. That was awful. Like, why did you make me do that? Why are you rescuing these people? Why are you showing them grace? This is the worst thing that could have happened. I want to die. I hate those people. And then God says, I don't. And then the book of Jonah just awkwardly ends. There's like this weird cliffhanger ending, like that's it. And if you're the reader, you're left sitting there saying like, oh, okay. 
on to the book of Micah. Like, that was weird. The ending of Jonah is really strange because this is the cultural backdrop because it grinds against the cultural thinking of the day that God is for the Jews and the Jews are saved, that God is against the pagans and the pagans are not saved. The Messiah is not for them. Salvation is not for them. That's not why the Messiah is coming. And it's in that context, in that culture, that Jesus tells Nicodemus, leader among leaders, Jew of Jews, most favored of the most favored, most saved of the most saved, VIP, front of the line for the kingdom of heaven. And he says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are reborn. This is shocking in their day and age. And and Nicodemus responds the way any Jewish person would respond. What are you talking about? You want me to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? I've already been born a Jew. I'm already saved. Why would I ever need to be born again? What you're saying does not make sense. I'm already saved. And Jesus says, no, you're not. I'm going to be lifted up on the cross and like the snake of Moses in the wilderness, it will actually be the people who respond to me in repentance who will be saved. And and they're thinking, wait, what? You mean like, like the Ninevites and those people? What are, you, what are you talking about? What does this mean? And, and it's in that moment that John bursts out from behind the narrative with his own voice. And he says, For God so loved the world. And, and they're thinking, Loved the world? God doesn't love the world, does he? But John continues, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And and they're thinking, really? Like the Jewish Messiah hasn't just come to save the Jews? And he's not going to judge and do away with the pagans? What, What are you talking about? He's come for the whole world. And worse yet, he's actually going to divide the Jews in the process. John keeps writing. This is verse 18. It says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. This is the dividing line. It's not Jew and Gentile. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of 
God. So try to grasp this if you can, that for centuries, if not millennia, the world has been divided vertically between Jew and Gentile, and not just culturally. This is not simply a cultural division. It was thought to be a spiritual division. It's a division of where God's favor and blessing and salvation falls. The line is thought to be vertical. For hundreds, if not thousands of years, this is the thinking. And now, in a moment, there's this dramatic turning point, and the line is shifting to a horizontal line. There are still just two categories of humanity, but it is no longer Jew and Gentile. It is now those who say yes to Jesus and those who say no to Jesus. Which means that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be invited and every tribe, tongue, and nation will be divided in the process. In fact, Jesus himself warns that the family unit, which in the ancient Near East is the most intimate, sacred, important web of relationships that you have, He says, the family unit itself will be divided over me. There are those who say yes, and there are those who say no. There are those who follow and those who don't. There are those who step forward into the light, and there are those who shrink back into the darkness. And all those who say yes all those who step forward, all those who become disciples, the Bible says, actually become a new type of humanity. You are a new humanity, and and this new humanity, coming from every tribe, tongue, and nation on on the earth, now has more in common with one another than they do with anyone else. Which means that if you're here this morning and you've made that decision, you've given your life to Jesus, you've stepped into the light and become a disciple, you now have more in common with a single teenage mom in West Africa or a priest in the Vatican or or a newly converted Taliban warlord than you do with most of the people in this city. There are people all around you who talk like you, who dress like you, who act like you, who vote like you, who post pictures on Instagram that you really vibe with. The Bible says you actually have more in common with the stunning, diverse, global family of Jesus than you do with those people. Because it's no longer about your language or your culture or your spiritual heritage. It's about how you respond to Jesus. Will you say yes or will you say no? Humanity is once again divided in two. So what should we do this morning? How do we respond to this reality? 
Well, first off, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never repented of your old life and surrendered and stepped into the new and actually received what it is that Jesus is offering, you have a chance to do that right here, right now, this morning. You can surrender in that way. You can say yes to Jesus, who he says he is, to his death, burial, resurrection. And when that happens, you actually cross over that line. You become part of a new humanity. You have, you have a, new, a new name, in a sense, a new family, a new, a new destiny in God, a new eternity before you. And for the rest of us who are already followers of Jesus, my challenge to you this morning is actually to receive John 3.16 in the form of a challenge. Because if we sit for just a moment and contemplate the implications of this verse, we'll realize pretty quickly that there are some people in the world who are really hard to love. For some of us, those who are most difficult for us to love are the ones who are furthest away. It's the communist leader in China who is ruthlessly seeking out and uprooting the underground church, arresting people along the way. It's the Taliban fighter who mounted resistance against American troops in Afghanistan. It's, it's people who are very far away and who are not like us at all. And you hear John 3.16 and there's some part of us that says, really, Lord? Like, seriously, like, you, you love that person? Like the, the Jews in the first century, we say, they're so different than us. They seem so far away. God, surely you don't love them. And, and we're going to have to ask God to lead us into a real but counterintuitive love for those people out there. For others of us, it's people who are closer to home. Uh, the people we find most difficult to love are the ones who are uh, right here in our city, but perhaps they voted for the opposite political party that you did. Or perhaps they are advocating unbiblical and anti-biblical paradigms within our public school systems. Or perhaps they're so deep in YouTube conspiracy theories that they've completely lost touch with reality. And you find them to be endlessly frustrating because they don't see the world the way you see the world. Some of us struggle the most with people right here in our city, and we think, please, Lord, not those people. Like, do you really love those people? They are like nails on a chalkboard. They are so obnoxious. Please, Lord, do not ask me to love those people. Must I really? And finally, some of us struggle most with those who are closest to home. 
with those who are in our homes. A roommate, a spouse, an immediate family member, children if you have them. Perhaps you find it easy to love the distant Taliban fighter or the lost communist for the very reason that they are a million miles away. But unfortunately, your mother-in-law is not. For many of us, it's those closest to home who we actually struggle most to love because they're in our face. And we see their quirks and their flaws and their failures and they've wounded us personally and it grinds on us day in and day out. I will happily love an enemy on the other side of the world who I don't actually know and don't have to meet because that's actually easier than loving somebody in my home who's grinding on me day after day. I actually find it really hard to practically and truly show love to them day in and day out. So as we close, I'll invite you to do this exercise with me. Um, You can clear off your lap if you want or you have your Bible open, and I'll actually invite those who are willing to just close their eyes for a moment and take a deep breath. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye the person or people who you hate most. (laughs) The people that you most struggle to love. The people who perhaps have wounded you or offended you or just believe and advocate a paradigm and a lifestyle that is so different from yours that it just grinds on you. Could be ISIS or the Taliban. Could be the Democrats or the Republicans. Could be that uncle who's swallowed up in conspiracy theories and can speak of nothing else. Whoever that is, I want you to picture them in your mind. And as you're picturing them, I want you to think to yourself, God loves this person. The Jesus that I know knows them and loves them. In fact, God so loves that person in your mind that he gave his one and only son that they might believe in him and have eternal life. He didn't come to condemn this person that you're thinking of, but rather to save them through his son and his sacrificial death, to rescue them out of darkness and bring them into the light, to rescue them out of the insanity of sin and death and hell, 
and bring them into the fullness of the kingdom of God. Freeing them from every enemy and curing them of every ailment of their soul along the way. And if God really loves that person, then maybe in the power of the Spirit, He can teach you to love them too. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we lift up to you our enemies. We lift up to you the people who grind on us, the people who annoy us, the people who the people who we wish were not. We lift up the people who, if we're really honest, we wish that you didn't love. Perhaps we even struggle or are somehow offended by the fact that that you love them, that you died for them, that you're waiting to pour out your grace over them. We confess to you this morning that there are times when we wish you didn't love the whole world. And there are certain people within it in particular that we just, we just wish didn't exist. But before we even attempt to love them, Lord, I pray in the power of the Spirit this morning, before we make a move toward that person or even begin to dream about how we might bless them, I pray that we would first and foremost sense your love for us, undying, unbreakable, lavished upon us, and we would sense your love for them. And as we simply grow in that awareness of your love for us and your uh, sometimes offensive love for them, I think some things are going to start to fall into place. Jesus, we confess this morning that uh, we do not always live where you are, but we want to. We actually believe that's the place of greatest freedom. That's the place of greatest wholeness. That no one, no human being has ever lived that was more full of life than Jesus. And as you were dying on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's what freedom looks like. That's what love looks like. Radical, offensive love that we often wish was not so held out to those 
who we wish you would not offer it to. So Jesus, we come confessing those things this morning. And I'll end with these verses. These are Paul's words from the book of Ephesians. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. All of them. And I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to hate those who hate you. No. You may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church, that's you and me, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.